I'm Sarah and I'll be reading, uh, I have the privilege of reading God's word for you this morning. Uh, We'll be reading from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Um, If you haven't got a Bible with you, we normally have a back table, which, oh yes it is over there, I can't see it from here very well. Um, Feel free to grab a Bible if you don't have one and join along with us. Give you a moment to find that. So it's 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 14 to chapter 3 verses 9. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected but they will not get very far, as in the case of those men, 
their folly will be clear to everyone. Thank you. How's that? As my kids would say, skill issue from up here. Do anyone else's kids say that or is that just mine? Just mine. I'll have to tell them that. Okay. Thanks, Sarah, for the reading. Let's just pray as we come around God's word this morning. Lord, we just pray that as we continue our journey through to Timothy, that you'd be with us. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we look at um, perhaps a little bit of a different topic today, that you would help us to uh, see what you're saying here. You would help us to put it into practice and you'd help us to focus on living the right way and also on right doctrine and truth. We ask for these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So for those of you who are visiting or have just joined us, uh, we're about halfway through a series on to Timothy. And just a little bit of a warning is that I first gave this uh, series to a whole bunch of Bible translators who know a lot of Greek and linguistics and all that sort of stuff. So I have adapted it for a non like, I know not all of you know Greek. Who knows Greek? Maybe three of you? Okay. <laughs> so, so for those of you who don't know Greek and things like that, but there still is some technical stuff in there, so I'm just giving you a little bit of a heads-up warning about that. As we listen to today's passage, as Sarah read it out, how did Paul come across to you? Warning, yeah, yes, warnings, lots of warnings, isn't there? aren't there? I mean, when I read it, to me, it sounds like Paul comes across as a bit like a grumpy old man. Did anyone else get that impression, or was it just me? He just seems upset with a whole lot of people, or with some people. He even calls some of them out by name. He's upset with bad doctrine, bad practices, that seem to be going around and, and gaining traction. He's also upset with some apparently weak women, as well as the tricksters who are tricking them. Overall, we're getting this impression of an angry Paul. Paul on the warpath. So what do we make of this Paul? Well, we need to understand what Paul is doing, why he's doing it, and how he's doing it. In this passage, Paul is warning Timothy about bad ideas. Hence the title of the passage, of the sermon today, dealing with bad people and their bad ideas, bad doctrine, bad theories going around, bad behaviours and the bad people who are spreading them. But we need to understand that Paul is not just upset for the sake of being upset. He didn't just get out on the wrong side of bed this, that morning. He is upset for a reason. What is that reason? And the reason is, is because bad ideas, these ideas, doctrines and theories going around are dangerous. They are divisive and they spread like gangrene or cancer spreads. If Timothy doesn't do something about them, more people will be hurt, more people will be destroyed, there will be more division and most importantly, the work of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ will go backwards rather than forwards. Who likes conflict and confrontation? 
There's always a few people, but no, most of us don't. Maybe all of us don't like it. But sometimes if we don't confront, then the bad guys win and the bad stuff spreads. And so out of concern for Timothy and the church he pastors, Paul spends this section mainly warning Timothy about bad people with their bad ideas and how to deal with them. We see this already in our first few verses of this section. Verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value. It only ruins those who listen. It seems as though there has been some fighting over words in the church. In verses 16 to 18 of chapter 3 we read, Avoid godless chapter chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly their teaching will spread like gangrene among them are Hermeneus and Philetus who have departed from the truth they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some this is serious stuff, serious stuff that destroys the faith of some people. It seems as though some serious doctrinal error has been spreading, specifically that the resurrection has already happened. Now, of course, this can't be talking about Jesus' resurrection because we do know that that has happened. What these false teachers must be teaching is that our resurrection has already happened. We don't know the full details. It's only mentioned in passing what this error is. But it seems as though it was some sort of over-realized eschatology. What that means is, is that it means that some teaching was going around that says that Jesus has already returned and that the resurrection from the dead of believers has already happened and isn't sometime in the future, which is what the truth is, is that it's still to come. So, in other words, this was not just some small doctrinal difference because we do have small doctrinal differences that we need to live with. It's not some small doctrinal difference, but it is something that is quite major, that goes to the heart of the faith. It was so bad that it has ruined some people's faith. And that is a serious thing. After all, last Sunday we saw that Paul has been willing to go through much suffering and shame so that people can hear and receive salvation through Jesus Christ. So, of course, Paul is going to try and do something about it when false teaching is actually leading some people away from the Lord rather than towards him. Not only are these people destroying the faith of other people, but they're also taking advantage of vulnerable people, as we read in chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. And listen in, if please follow through in your Bibles. As uh, Sarah said, said, if you haven't got a Bible, there's some on the back table. It's all right to also look up on your phone, look at the verses as well. So chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jumbras opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, 
are rejected. Now in this passage, Paul is not saying that all women are gullible. Please don't read that into it. But rather that these particular ones are. We don't know why, but for some reason, these particular women seem to be quite gullible. And then there are these false teachers who take advantage of their gullibility by sweet-talking their way into their homes and tricking them and getting them to follow their strange ideas. So a lot of damage is being done by these bad people with their bad ideas. And that's why Paul is being so direct about what's going on, even to the point of calling out by name two of the people who are spreading this bad, these bad ideas, false teaching. The matter is so serious, it has to be dealt with and dealt with directly. So let's see what the problem is, and then most importantly, let's see how Paul advises Timothy how to deal with it. Firstly, notice how often the bad ideas and the bad doctrine seem to be focused on discussions about words and ideas that are not central to the gospel, not central to the good news. They're peripheral issues. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Warn them before God about quarreling, against quarreling about words. In verse 16, avoid godless chatter. In chapter 3, verse 7, they are always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of truth. You know, to be honest, this reminds me of what happened a couple of years ago. The pandemic, during COVID. During COVID, people spread all sorts of weird ideas. Even Christians, shamefully, sometimes especially Christians, were the main culprits of some of the weird ideas going around. Strange ideas about vaccines being the mark of the beast, about 5G, about masks, you name it, all sorts of things. And for some people, it became a mark of who was a real believer, rather than what the Bible says is a real believer. Now, I'm not wanting to minimise that these things were important. We all had to face some difficult choices during the pandemic, and it was not always clear what we should do. And so different people did arrive at different decisions about some of these issues. So the question is, how do we decide what are useless and dangerous ideas and those ideas that are actually good? Well, in verse 23 we read, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. One of the marks of these unhealthy teachings is that they only start fights. And how? Some of those COVID debates remind me of that. They just started and spread fights, quarrels and division. Of course, it wasn't just through COVID that these strange ideas went around. There's always been strange ideas and there always will be until Jesus comes back. But it just seemed to be the catalyst for a lot of them to come out when we were under pressure and stress. But you might say... Surely contending for the truth against error can also lead to quarrels and arguments. And yes, it may. But here in our passage, we find instructions about how we as believers are to deal with error. Let's have a look at what Paul tells Timothy to do with false teachers. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 26. 
don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Paul tells Timothy not to fight with these false teachers. When they start spreading their silly ideas and trying to get into a debate about them, he says in verse 23, just don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Stay away from the argument. And then in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So, what should God's servant do? Should he just let the false teachers get away with spreading their false teaching? No. In verse 24, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. Yes, God's servant must oppose false teachers and their teaching, but not in an argumentative, aggressive way, but gently, in the hope that they would recognize the truth and come to their senses. Paul says that God's servant must also be good at teaching, and that implies that if you teach something, you have to know what you're teaching about. God's servant must know what is actually true. And this takes us back to the first talk a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1 there was a very brief but a very comprehensive description of the gospel, the good news, from verses 9 to 10. In chapter 1, which I'll just read out, He, that's God or Jesus, has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and who has brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. That is a wonderful summary of the truth. But let's have a closer look at it, what it is saying. It contains, firstly, our problem, which is our sin. It says, not because of anything we have done. It contains our sentence, our judgment, which is death that Jesus rescues us from. It contains God's plan for salvation, which he has planned before the beginning of time. It talks about his grace. That just means his gift or his favour toward us. And he showed us his favour through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, God's chosen one. And this was a gift. That means it was not because of our good deeds, because it doesn't matter how good we try to be, we can never be good enough to God's standard. And it was all through Jesus the Messiah, God's anointed chosen one, who appeared, who came as a human being. In technical language, we call that the incarnation. Then Jesus destroyed death. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible that he destroyed death by dying on the cross 
and he has shown us life and immortality. And likewise, from elsewhere in the Bible, we know he did that by rising from the dead. This, friends, is the truth. And when there are doctrines and theories and arguments going around, we need to compare them to the truth. And then not to quarrel or fight with our opponents, but to gently correct them in the hope they will come to their senses. For example, you know, does having the vaccine mean you'll go to heaven? Or does not having the vaccine mean you'll go to heaven? The Bible doesn't say either. The Bible judges whether you go to heaven based on your faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we know what the truth is? Well, we'll talk more about that next Sunday when in chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, Paul reminds Timothy how important the Scriptures are. Now we've had an overview of what this passage is about. Let's have a look at some of the rhetorical features that are in it. Let's get a bit technical. Who's ready for this? Fasten your seatbelts. Firstly, we again see the use of examples in this passage. Just like in last Sunday's passage, we had the negative example of some bad people. So too, in today's passage, we also have the negative examples of bad people. We have the bad examples of Homineus and Philetus in chapter 2, verse 17, whose bad ideas are spreading like gangrene or cancer. Then in chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, we have the bad example of evil people who look godly on the outside but in reality are not. And we'll have a closer look at the rhetorical features in that passage soon. Then in chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, we have the bad examples of some gullible women and also of the tricksters who take advantage of their gullibility. And then Paul mentions two bad examples from the Old Testament, Janus and Jumbras. All these people are given as examples for whom Timothy is, and us too, are not to follow. But there is one good example. He's not given a name. In chapter 2, verse 24, Paul just describes the Lord's servant. And we just looked at how God's servant is an example to Timothy about how to avoid stupid and foolish debates and to gently correct those people who oppose the truth. In today's passage, we will also see the honour and shame concept develop further and also become a bit clearer. We've seen before how a number of times Paul has urged Timothy not to be ashamed of following the Lord and not to be ashamed of Paul, his mentor. But now Paul moves from talking about honour and shame before people to talking about honour and shame before God. In chapter 2, verse 15, we read, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In other words, Timothy has a choice. We have a choice too. We can choose honour in the world's eyes and miss out on honour in God's eyes. Or we can be willing to suffer for the sake of the good news of the gospel. And that includes taking on suffering, taking on shame in the world's eyes, in people's eyes, 
But in so doing that, we gain God's approval as a worker having no need to be ashamed, as someone who correctly teaches the truth. And many of us face the same choices in our life, don't we? Many of us, when we follow Jesus, can face shame from our family. In our workplaces, we can face shame from neighbours, from people in our community. But we need to be encouraged that as we do that, we are not ashamed in God's eyes. In fact, God approves of what we do. And in the light of the big picture and eternity, what is more important? Honour and shame in people's eyes? Or in God's eyes? Which one? God's eyes. Thank you. And then in chapter 2, verses 20 to 21, Paul then uses an honour and shame metaphor from house utensils, which can seem a little bit... I don't know, does anyone read that and think what he's talking about? Let's have a look. Verses 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. You know, it's an interesting analogy, probably better understood in the ancient Roman world than our world today, but I guess we can see it through the difference between our best cups and plates, which we bring out when we have special guests, compared to the ordinary containers which we might use for rubbish bins and other things which we won't mention. And Paul tells Timothy, if you want to have honour in God's eyes, then get rid of the common, unimportant things in your life, and if you do, you will be an honourable worker for God, useful to him, prepared to do good things. And in the next few verses, Paul tells Timothy, and he tells us, how to cleanse himself from shameful things and chase after what's good. Verse 22, listen to what it says. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words... It says here, don't tolerate bad stuff. It says, don't go as close as you can to the evil desires of youth without actually sinning. It doesn't say that. It says, flee from them. Stay as far away from them as you can. But instead, pursue or chase after the good stuff. Then in chapter 3, it begins with a warning to Timothy that even though things are tough now, even tougher times are coming. Chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. That's a little bit sobering, isn't it? Paul then tells Timothy that this is because people will be terribly bad. And then over three verses, from verses 2 to 4, he launches into what we call a vice list. Has anyone heard of a vice list before? Some people have. A vice list is an important rhetorical feature, but it is difficult to translate well into English. There are a few things that we need to understand about vice lists. 
The first thing is to know what the word vice means. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word. In modern English, it just means bad behaviour, doing bad things. So we might call this a bad behaviour list. In this list, Paul uses a rhetorical device called accumulation. Accumulation just means what it says, accumulating one thing on top of another. In three verses, Paul uses 18 different terms to describe these vices or bad behaviours, all loaded on top of each other. And one of the really thing, important things for us to realise is that what is important in a vice list or a bad behaviours list with all this accumulation is that the overall effect of accumulating 18 bad things, one on top of each other, is more important than the individual meaning of each particular word. In other words, you need to look at the whole thing together and the effect that it's having on you. Listen to this list again, and instead of trying to dissect all the nuances between the different bad things there, just think about the effect it has on you of hearing 18 bad things in a row lumped on top of each other. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Do you see how the meaning of the passage is not so much in what in each individual word means, but in the overall effect it has on us as we read or listen to this list? The impression we get is that these are really, really bad people, and we should be wary of them and stay away from them, and in no way should we imitate them or be like them. The other thing that we find in a vice or a bad behaviour list like this one is that in the original Greek, some sounds were repeated, what we call assonance or alliteration. Who remembers studying assonance and alliteration in school? A few of you, a long time ago for some of us. And assonance and alliteration is just repeating the same sounds. I'll show you in a tick. This gives an effect to the passage that makes you sit up and take notice because you notice the sounds. Now, I know most of you don't know Greek, some of you do, but please bear with me, I'm going to read this list out in Greek. I will show it on the PowerPoint in English letters, so you don't have to read it in Greek letters. You don't have to worry about what the meaning says, you've just heard it in English, but listen to the repetition of similar sounds. On the screen, and that's up there, I've highlighted some of these sound features. There are 16 words that I've highlighted in green, which have an oi ending. So you've got all this rhyme going throughout it. There are eight words with blue, highlighted in blue, that start with the letter alpha or A. All of them are one after another. A is just like Greek for un. You know how we put un in front of words? You know, unwise, unsensible. No, we don't say unsensible, but you know what I mean. There are eight words, all of them one after another, except for the word diaboloi, which is stuck in the middle of the list. There are four F sounds close together. Philautoi, philagoroi, alazonis uporephanoi, blasphemoi. You get this F sound, and you also get some P sounds, and P and F are similar. So listen as I read it out again and see if you pick them up. 
Especially listen for the oi sound on the end, that F sound repeating, and also where there's a series of words beginning with A or A. Esontai gra oi anthropoi philautoi philagroi alathonus uporephonoi blasphemoi ronunison apithes achristoi anosioi astorgoi aspondoi diavoloi acrites anemoroi aphilagathoi prodote propetes tetufomenoi philedenoi malon e philotheoi. So unfortunately, it's hard to bring these sound features over into other languages. One of the challenges for us people who work as Bible translators. But one way you could do it in English is by using one word for each bad thing, like it is in Greek, so you get that staccato effect. And the other way is by starting many of the words with the letter un. So instead of having a, because a just means un in Greek, you can replace it with un in English. So that you get this rapid-fire accumulation of bad things and you hear all these uns. So let's listen how that might sound like. I've got it up on the screen there. That's because people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, arrogant, proud, slanderers, rebelling against their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unfeeling, unappeasable, backstabbers, uncontrollable, uncivilized, unsociable, traitors, reckless, deluded, loving pleasure instead of loving God. So having short words and all those words beginning with un gives you an idea what it would have sounded like for a Greek speaker. The whole idea of the vice list with accumulation of these bad character traits and with these sound devices is so that at the end of the list the reader, the listener, you can feel, not just know but feel how bad these people are it doesn't just touch your mind, it does touch your mind, but not just your mind, but it also touches your heart. So that you don't just understand what's said, but you're also emotionally affected by it and realise in your heart that, wow, these really are bad people. Don't be like them. Remember that we are not just logical, rational people. We are that, although sometimes I wonder, but we're supposed to be. But we're also people who feel and have emotions. So in summary, what have we looked at today? We looked again at some of the socio-rhetorical features of the passage. We looked at the continuation of the honour-shame theme, that it is better to have shame in the eyes of the world so that we can have honour in God's eyes. We've looked at how dangerous bad ideas and doctrine can be and how it is important to do something about bad ideas and doctrine, but we do it by gentle persuasion rather than getting into arguments. And next Sunday, we will look at how important the Scriptures are in working out what's the truth because it is a big question. How do we know what the truth is? We also looked at why it is important to guard against bad ideas and bad doctrine because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is so important as we saw right back in chapter 1. The good things we do cannot save us because they're not enough. But by God's gift through Jesus the Messiah, God's chosen one, he has abolished death and given us eternal life if we turn away from doing things our own way 
from the wrong things that we do and turn in trust and belief to Jesus, the chosen one. Well, that's the end of the sermon. Maybe we have time for a couple of questions. Does anyone have a question?